Job chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night, set, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet, I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. If you have your Bible, please turn to Job chapter 3. Um, I want to just say on the front end of this <clears throat> message that I, I love this church family. Um, as many of you, I'm sure, know by now, there's um, a family in our church, the mayor's family, uh, Joe, who is uh, one of our primary worship leaders, um, Michaela, who has served in, in kids' church in the nursery, um, who, who lost their their youngest child, um, yesterday afternoon. Uh, he was just under four months old, and Obi, Obadiah, was a loved baby boy. One of my favorite memories of him was just recently watching all the all the moms fight over him at Eric Donahue's birthday party. Um, man, I, I can't imagine uh, just the unspeakable horror that 
the mayor's family may, must be walking through right now, um, even having spent some of the day with them yesterday. Um, but if just seeing how this family of believers um, loves and prays and serves one another um, makes me just really grateful to God for every one of you. We're taking a break from our teaching series on the book of Revelation um, to just look at a few passages in, in the book of Job. It's a book about great evil, about great suffering, about how we walk through suffering and, 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 and where, where do we find God in the middle of our suffering. And in, and in Job, in the first chapter of Job, we're, we're introduced to the character Job. He's, he's a man who had everything that a guy dreams of. He has a, a wife, a house, children, wealth, good health. He's considered somebody who is blameless before God, and then suddenly everything is taken from him. Everything's stripped away, one thing after the other, wave after wave after wave. His, his children are taken, his health fails. His fortunes are plundered, and yet after enduring all of that, at the end of Job chapter 1, what we find is that this man who's found blameless before God, he, he still at the end of chapter 1 is, is worshiping God. In verse 20 of chapter 1, it says that Job arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Like tearing off your robe and, and shaving your head is, is something that they would do back then to express lament. Like that, that time that we spent earlier, uh, just a moment ago, this, this prayer of lament, just crying out to God, one of the ways that they did this back then is, is they would show an outward expression of the lament that was going on in their heart. They'd shave their heads, they'd tear off their clothes, and, and that's what Job did, and yet he falls to the ground and he worships, and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave... And the Lord is taken away. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in verse 22, it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, verse 7, what we see is that our our enemy, the devil, is, 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 is trying to tear Job down even further. And in verse 7, it says that Satan, he went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome, loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. This is talking about Job. He took broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. He's got these, these boils and these sores, and he's taken glass to scrape them from his skin. And so he's in physical pain. 
He's in mental anguish. He's in emotional agony. To the point that his, his wife is getting like frustrated by his faith. And then in, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says that his wife said to him, said to Job, why do you hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. But Job said to her, he said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish ones would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And again, it says in all this, Job did not sin sin with his lips. What we see in these verses is just mind-boggling truths that Job here, he's, he's, he's trusting in God. He's worshiping God in the middle of unspeakable tragedy and loss. And for him, this isn't just like a sudden tragedy that's, that's here in one moment and gone the next. No, the kind of pain he's experiencing is pain that lingers for days and days on end. For months and months, for years and years on end. And that's where Job chapter 3 picks up, which Kelsey just read. And so by the time we get to Job 3, we see a man who's broken. He's done, and he's undone. He's broken, yet blameless. Done, yet upright. He's totally committed to God, but now in chapter 3, he's really starting to struggle. He's really trying to struggle to understand and comprehend the mysteries of God's ways. And he starts asking, why? He starts looking up to God and he says, why does this happen? What the heck? Why? And he wrestles with these deep questions. These wise questions. And what I want us to see in chapter 3 is how he wrestles with the deep questions of, of agony. Verse 1 says that he opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He says, let the day perish on which I was born in the night that said, a man is conceived Verse 6, he says, that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. He's starting to curse the day he was born. Things are getting dark for him. Great depression, spiritual agony. He says, let the day that I was born, let it be removed from the calendar. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth or come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or the breast that I should nurse? Why is light given to him, verse 20, who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? So Job starts to, to, to describe why he's lamenting, why he's crying out, why he's just in agonies because he says, my life is miserable. It tastes bitter, he says, life to the bitter in soul. 
To those, he said, who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is like given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. He says, my life is a living nightmare. In verse 26, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. At least six times in this chapter, Job asks that big why question. I mean, this is the first time in the book of Job that he's speaking after having confessed his faith in God earlier in the midst of suffering. And as he's speaking, he starts to go way back to even the day that he was born, even before the day he was born, the day he was conceived. And he's like, I wish those days didn't even happen. Erase me from this timeline. Why was I born? Why did you make me? And if the world is such a crappy place to live sometimes, like, I I want you to feel the depth of his agony, the depth of his pain. I want you to think of perhaps the big why questions that maybe you have this afternoon. What are the big why questions that you have for God? Your thoughts, struggles, questions that you wrestle with, the hard things that you've gone through, the hard questions that you're not even wondering if it's okay to ask, hard experiences that you've walked through or maybe are walking through emotionally, physically, just anything. Questions like why do bad things happen to good people? Why can't I get a break? Why can't I have children? Why can't I get married? Why is the marriage I'm in hard? Why do the nations rage? Why do do some people die too early? Whatever question, whatever why question that you have, what I want you to see in the book of Job is that you are not alone. You're not alone, and you're, you're sitting next to someone sitting across from someone that has some of those same questions. When you run through the Bible, you find people who ask these same questions. You see it all throughout the book of Psalms, book of Ecclesiastes, clearly in the book of Job. We all have these heavy why questions, and if we're honest, I mean, we got to be honest, because if we're honest, we try to ignore these why questions. Until we're just forced to deal with them. 
Man, we live in the Orange County suburbs where our idol, the God that we worship, is comfort, is ease, is convenience. And so we don't like to think about hard things. We don't like hard conversations. We don't like hard thoughts. We don't like hard circumstances. We want to look the other way because it's not easy. It's not comfortable. But man, the scriptures tell us, the scriptures tell us that to turn the other way, to ignore these questions is a mistake. They're like the check engine light that's meant to grab our attention and cause us to ask the big questions of our life, like why are we here? What is the point of all this? And is there any hope? And if so, where can it be found? Now, we're not, we're not going to answer in detail the big why questions, which you probably figured, because there are no easy or clear answers. But I do want to show you from the book of Job maybe a few rocks of truth that we can stand on when you feel the ground of your faith starting to shift and give way. Before we get into the text, I want to invite you guys to pray with me. Father in heaven, you know our questions. You know our pains, our struggles, our hurts, the things that we wrestle with. you know to a greater degree than any one of us what the mayor's family is going through. So we ask God of mercy that you would just surround Joe, Michaela, little Tolkien, and their family with your peace and comfort. We ask that you would help us as their brothers and sisters with our hearts and our minds that you would just speak to us, help us understand where our comfort and hope and our peace lies in the middle of the great tragedies of life. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. In faith, Job is coming to God in chapter 3, and he's, he's saying, God, why? Why even? Why am I even here? And it's though as he yearns to just be gone. But I want you to show you three rocks of truth that Job learns to stand on. The first is this. That God is all wise. God is all wise. Jump ahead to Job chapter 28. And what you see is that Job chapter 28 is almost like the climax to the book of Job. Where it, it, this, is, this chapter is, 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 is often like what makes the book of Job considered wisdom literature. 
And as Job is wrestling with his why questions, I want you to look at what he begins to say in chapter 8, verse 12. He says, but where, where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And so he starts to call out for wisdom. He says, where can I find wisdom? Where can I find answers to these why questions? In verse 13, he says, man does not know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. <clears throat> Saying mankind, like men and women, we don't know the worth of true wisdom. And we don't realize that it can't even be found in the land of the living. He says, verse 14, the deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. Down in verse 20, he says, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Verse 23, he says, but God understands the way to it and he knows its place. Job is saying, look, true wisdom has got to exist. There's got to be truth out there. There's got to be wisdom out there. It's somewhere and there's, <clears throat> there's wisdom out there that knows the answer to the why. There's wisdom out there that knows all there is to know about the human heart, about the seasons of life, about the meaning and purpose of everything, about the meaning and purpose of our agony and our suffering. And he says, the place where this wisdom must come from, it can't come from anywhere else in creation. It must come from the creator. It's got to come from God. Only God has perfect wisdom. This is the reason that Graham Goldsworthy, the old Bible scholar, says that this chapter is so important. Job 20 is so important to understanding wisdom. It tells us that because God created the world, because he's the creator, only he has perfect wisdom. Only he is all wise. For example, in verse 24, it says, he, speaking of God, he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. In other words, Job is saying, look, if God is real, and I believe that he is, then he's the one who made everything. I mean, he knows where the sea begins and ends. He measured that all out. And he not only made everything, but he, he sees everything as it exists now, and he sees it all at once. That's why he's all wise. He sees all of reality in every dimension because he made all of reality. <coughs> and at the time that this was written, like what Job is saying is significant in contrast to, to what everyone else was saying about how the world came about. Because at the time this was written, all other creation accounts said that the world came into being because of some cosmic conflict or an explosion like the Big Bang, pure chaos, just appeared out of nowhere and made everything, but only the Bible only the Bible says, no, God is all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's got no 
no rivals. And so the creation of the world wasn't the result of a power struggle. It wasn't the result of chaos, but it was the work of an artist, a cosmic craftsman. He created the world in delight. It has order. It has paths and it has measures. And part of standing on the rock of truth that says that God is all wise is recognizing that we are not. We lack full knowledge. How often is it that we find ourselves saying like, man, if I knew back then what I know now, like I would have done that thing differently. We're not all wise because we don't, we don't know everything. And so the more that we know the true things of God, the wiser that we get. And how perfect is God's knowledge? 100%. He knows not only all there is to know, but he knows the past in full. He knows the present in full, and he knows the future in all of its wholeness and all of its fullness. God is never caught by surprise. He's never one to say, I didn't know that. He's never one to say, I didn't see that coming. He's never one to say, like, oops. He's never caught by surprise. So we also need to understand that that our perspective as those who are not all wise, as we stand before a God who is all wise, our perspective is limited. We don't have full knowledge of all the factors in play in any given situation. That's why Job is marveling when he says in verse 24 that God looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. He sees everything under their proper perspective. He knows how one thing is going to affect another, uh, how one thing that is evil can lead to something of good, to something of eternal value. He sees a million, billion, trillion things that we can never see. Because of our limited perspective, he made the world, he knows the world, and he always acts, always acts in perfect wisdom. We are not all wise, but God is. We lack knowledge and perspective, but God does not. And so you might ask the honest question, well, how can we trust God when bad things happen for no apparent reason? that have no apparent value. So you can learn to trust him when you remember that he is all wise and that we are not, that his knowledge is perfect and whole and that ours is not. That doesn't mean that we, we, we don't get upset. It doesn't mean that we don't ask hard questions. It doesn't mean that it's not okay to feel the pain and the agony. That's why Jesus came to meet us in that. His knowledge is perfect and whole. He knows all things. His perspective is eternal. It's like the kid who like goes up to a rocket engineer and says, you know, that thing will never get off the ground. There's no way. It's like a giant piece of metal. 
that thing looks like it weighs so much, there's no way that the thing's ever getting off the ground. To which the rock engineer would reply, like, man, you don't even know, kid, right? Like, you don't even know the way that just the chemicals and the physics, and it's just how it all works. I mean, I'm trying to, like, explain how, I don't even know how it works, right? Like, you don't even know. And you and I, we're in the same spot, spiritually speaking. The distance between a small kid and the wisdom of a rocket engineer is nowhere as great as the distances between your wisdom and God's wisdom. And so with all of our agonizing why questions, with all of our questions of despair, remember that God is all wise and it brings glory to God when we trust him, even when we admit we have no idea what he's doing. I'll tell you, man, like, we can talk biblical theology, we can talk eschatology, we can talk book of Revelation and about, like, why bad things happen in general, right, and sin in the world and, like, where, where history is headed. I'll talk about that with you all day long. Man, I'm sitting at a bedside, embracing a father and mother while they hold the lifeless body of their child. I say, honestly, I'm like, dude, F this. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what he's doing. But in our humility, we come to God. We trust him even when we admit we have no idea what he's doing. So that's the first rock of truth that we stand on. The second, similar, right next to it, number two, that God is good. He's good. In the same way, even when we don't, understand how he's good. Even when we don't know what he's doing, we, we got to stand and trust that God is good. It says in the book of Job, in chapter 29, he says, Job again took up his discourse and he said, Oh, that I were as in months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and his light, I walked, and by his light, I walked through darkness. Job is like reminiscing to like the good old days. Back when he could feel God's presence, when he could see God's work. And then through the rest of Job 29, Job looks back on those days when things were going well for him. And he's like, man, back in those days, I was healthy. I was surrounded by family. And he starts recounting all these things as evidence of God's goodness in his life. He talks about how he was able to serve the needy and help others in that season. And, and it was good in his life. It was good pouring out to others through his life. And he spends the entire chapter recalling those days, even without the help of photographs. He can remember the days 
when God's goodness was so apparent to him. And as he looks back, as he looks back, you see that he's longing for those days. Look, man, sometimes it's okay to like long for those days. He's longing for those days. And it can be an incredibly helpful move for us to look back and to seek evidence of God's goodness in your life. Maybe you're like, man, I'm struggling to figure out how God is being good to me. I'm struggling to figure out like how God is wise in this. But I'm going to remind myself of the truths that I once held to. I'm going to remind myself of the times that I was walking in paths of righteousness. I'm going to remind myself of the times where I didn't have these, these doubts, this depression. To remember when you were sure of God's love, his care, his provision, his mercy. Notice the language that, that Job uses. He says, oh, that I was in the months of old, or he's like, I wish I was in the months of old as in the days when God watched over me. I mean, he's talking as if God is not watching over him anymore. Like, do you ever feel that way? You ever feel that way? But, but we also know from what Job chapter 1 and 2 says is that God has not stopped watching over him. The only thing he's changed is his experience of God's presence. God's not any less wise by chapter 29 than he was in chapters 1 and 2. The only thing that's different is, 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 is Job's perspective, his experience of that. So yes, Job is walking through unthinkable suffering. And his friends, man, his friends are like trying to play it down. Trying to play down his suffering. At one moment or at the other, at the other moment, they're trying to say like, no, man, the reason that this is happening is because like you must have done like some, something wrong. Like they, their theology is just all out of whack. But his suffering is... It's real. You, can't, you, you shouldn't play it down. You shouldn't diminish it. He acknowledges it, and God's love is still there. His presence is still there. And so, I mean, I want to encourage you today that especially if you're walking through hard questions, Remember that God is, he is, he truly is good. Rehearse that to yourself. Remind yourself of that. Remember the days when his goodness was as tangible to you as the ground under your feet. And know that the same God who provided for you in ways in the past, the same God who wooed and melted your heart in the past, he's still with you in the present. He hasn't changed. Your experience of that might change. Your joy in that might change. Your faithfulness to him might have changed, but he hasn't changed. He's still good. 
and he's still with you. And he's still working today in ways that you don't even see. So you can say words like King David did when he wrote Psalm 23, when he was going through intense moments of suffering, and he says, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. There's an author named Tom Schmidt. He tells a story about how he was uh, visiting this, this old woman uh, in, a, in a nursing home that he, he would visit every now and then with his church to like serve these, these people there. And there was this old woman who was, she was 89 years old. She was blind. She was deaf. She had this cancer that was eating away at her face. She'd, she'd lived in this nursing home for 25 years, strapped to a wheelchair. And the cancer that was eating away at her face had like pushed her nose off to the side and uh, had made one eye sort of droop down. It distorted her jaw. And she was like drooling constantly. Like it was, it was hard, he says, to, to like really like understand what she was trying to articulate unless you washed her lips and kind of like lean, leaned in. And he talks about how he visited her once uh, on Mother's Day weekend and he hands her a rose and he says, happy Mother's Day. And she grabs it with her frail hand and she tries to smell it. And she with, tries to like, gurgle out words, and and she says, thank you, but since I'm blind, can I I give this to someone else? And he's like, yeah, of course, sure, and she like points over here, and so he, he wheels her over to this corner where there's these other people, and she holds out the rose to somebody else, and he's, and, and she says to this other woman, she says, here, this is from Jesus. And the man asked her, what do, you, what do you think about? Like, she's just curious. Like, when, when she's, she's been there for 25 years, this cancer has been eating her face for 25 years. She's, she's blind. She's, she's deaf. There's not much she can do. And so he asked her, he says, what, what is it that you think about when you lie in your room? And her answer, she says, I think about my Jesus. I think about my Jesus. And he says, well, what is it that you think about Jesus? And she goes, I think about how he's been so good to me lately. Awfully good. She says, of all the things in the world, Jesus satisfies me most. I'd rather have Jesus than anything else in the world. He is all the world to me. And he says that as soon as she answered in that way, like she starts singing this song about being satisfied in Jesus. And, and Schmidt, he, 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 in his book, he talks about how he found himself that day just thinking about this woman. She's bedridden, she's blind, she's deaf. Cancer's eating away at her face. And, and, and he says in his book, he says, seconds ticked and 
ticked for her, and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without any human company and without any explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there, and she sang hymns. And he asks out loud in his book, how in the world could she do this? He doesn't answer in the book, but, but I think I know that the Jesus that she loved is the Jesus who sustained her. The Jesus that she loves is the Jesus who saved her. And that leads us to our third rock of truth we can stand on when our faith gives way, and that is that God is our only hope in the gospel. God is our only hope in the gospel. In one of his darkest, most rock-bottom moments in all the book of Job, Job chapter 19 specifically, Job is, is lamenting even more. He's in despair even more. But in the middle of his despair, we read one of the most amazing passages in the entire book. He says in verse 23, Job 19, verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. He's like, man, I wish, I wish my words could be written and inscribed uh, in a book. It's like he didn't even know, right? In verse 24, he says, and that with an iron pen and lead, that they were engraved in rock forever. For I know, here's what he wants to be written down. Here's what he wants to be engraved forever. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has, thus been, has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him and not anyone else, not another. My heart faints within me. He's like, I can't wait for that day. My heart faints thinking about the day that I get to see God, that I get to be with God. In the middle of his despair, Job says, look, I still have hope. I still have hope. And, and to be clear, he still doesn't have answers to any of his why questions. It's not like he suddenly got answers and now he has hope. In fact, he doesn't seem to have any of his questions answered. He doesn't know why, but he does know who. And so he cries out and he says, look, there are a lot of things I don't know. There are a lot of questions I have that are still unanswered, but I know I know that I have a redeemer, a savior, a deliverer who lives. See, the hope of the sufferer is not found in understanding our circumstances. The hope of the sufferer is not found in even better circumstances. No, the hope of the sufferer is found in understanding the God who is sovereign over those circumstances. And not just understanding him, but knowing him. Knowing he's alive. My redeemer, he says. Not the redeemer, he says my redeemer. I know him. I know him. (laughs) 
I think about my Jesus who's been good to me. He knows the God who is sovereign over his circumstances, that he is wise, that he is good, that the very reality that we find ourselves existing in is not only made by him, but is being remade by him. That we have a hopeful future. He says, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait till I get to see him and be with him. You see, the four big chapters of the Christian story, which is the truest story of all stories, is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It tells us how our world came to be, what went wrong with it, where we can find hope in it, and where it's all headed. It tells us that there is a creation <clears throat> that's made by God, but that crea- and that creation is good. Right? God looked at it, and he said it's good, but it also tells us that there was a fall, Right? That because of sin, because mankind turned away from God and sinned, that there are now things in the world that God didn't originally put there. And so God made the world. His creation was good. But because of us, now there's bad things in that good creation. And that creation is no longer good as it once was. There's things now that God didn't originally put in creation, things like death and suffering. Disease, famine, and war. And then on top of that, because you might ask, well, then what hope is there? On top of that, there's redemption. Where we see that God has not left us to a broken world, but he's actually come into the world in Jesus Christ to redeem us. He sent his son, Jesus, to push back the kingdom of darkness and to defeat it. To push back the darkness and defeat it with the unstoppable kingdom of light. And he created a people to save them from the fall and to bring them back to himself and to each other. So he didn't leave us to just rot in this broken world. No, he, he sent Jesus not only to restore creation and bring back his kingdom, but to save a people to be citizens of that kingdom. To save a people to be members of his family. And he saves us to bring us back to himself and to bring us back to each other. People of the gospel, people who know his goodness, people who know his wisdom and his grace. I'm sitting in this hospital room with two parents going through the worst day of their lives. They're weeping. We're weeping, we're embracing, we're reading scripture, we're praying. We're sitting in silence. One of the hospital employees comes up to me and he says, he says, hey, how, how, do you, how do you know them? Like, you guys are like friends from, friends from church? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, man, that's a special church. And I'm thinking like, I know, but also like, that's just the church. That's just the church. Is that, a, is that some of your experience of the church family? Man, what, what, what are you doing? God has reconciled us not only to himself, but to each other. We're in this now until he comes back. We're together now until he comes back. 
We're not here for the things that waste away in the world, the things that moth and rust are going to destroy. No, we're here for that imperishable kingdom that we read about earlier. And in this chapter of history, God joins his people together. He joins his people together in local churches so that we can be renewed by his wisdom, by the God of all wisdom, together. So we can rehearse his goodness together. So we can spur one another on to grow in Christ and and to grow in holy living as God works his salvation in us and through us to the end of time. Until we meet the final chapter, ourselves in the final chapter of history, restoration, where all things will be made new and whole, and there will be no more death and tears and suffering. The Bible doesn't give us full answers, but it does give us the capital A answer in Jesus. In the center of the Bible story, there's an even greater sufferer. And the man we know is Job. It's the man named Jesus. Jesus, the one who was truly and fully blameless, the perfect, innocent, blameless Son of God who was beaten, tortured, and nailed to a cross. Look at this. In Matthew 27, it says that at the ninth hour, when Jesus was on the cross, at the moment of his death, he cries out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which in his native tongue means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross saying, God, why have you forsaken me? We're not alone in our why questions. We're not alone in our why question. Jesus in his humanity, Jesus in his despair, Jesus in his agony, Jesus in his pain and suffering, he asks, why God? Why the cross? Why this pain? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the one who is the eternal joy and delight of God the Father, he became our sin, and he received God's wrath on the cross, so that, which is why he says, God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying that because he's on the cross. He's saying that because he's dying on the cross for our sin. He became our sin, and because he became our sin, God's presence had to look away. Because holiness and sin don't mingle. They don't mix. And Jesus did that. He received God's wrath so that we could receive God's forgiveness. He laid down his life so that we could do the same to our old selves and pick up a new life. The Son of God was forsaken on the cross by God the Father so that you and I would never have to be. Romans 8, 
verse 32, says, He, God who did not spare his own son, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In other words, God let Jesus have it on our behalf. If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, God the Father, in all his limitless wisdom, in all his perfect knowledge of all our sins, he's designed a way for everyone who trusts in Jesus. He knew what was best to bring us to himself for eternity. He knew what was best to undo the curse of sin. He knew what was best to make it so that death would lose its sting, so that evil and suffering would be no more. He knew as the one who was all wise and the one who was truly good, he knew what was best. And so Jesus trusted the wisdom of the Father and endured the cross to the end, endured the most horrifying act in all of history to usher in for us the most wonderful reality in all of history. He did that for all who trust in him, for all who follow him. When you hope in him, you will bring glory to him as your redeemer, as your defender, as your deliverer, as your savior. He's the only one who can make all things new in your life. One day, this fallen world of evil, sin, suffering, death will be no more. We'll see God, our redeemer, deliverer, face to face, along with all the saints of any, every generation along with every child who died too soon. And we'll see him face to face, our God. And he will wipe every, every tear away. He's our hope. He is good. He is wise. And so we lean and stand with him. Let's pray. Father, we there's so much that we don't that we don't know and that we barely begin to understand, but we we trust in you. You are wise in ways that we're not. You are good. Even in times we don't understand. And in Jesus Christ, you are our only hope. Our only rock. Our true deliverer, the living God. long for the end of pain and death and suffering. 
and we look forward to the day where our hope in Jesus is fully realized. Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.